opportunity to lift up me and my dad's relationship through discussions about politics, current events, and whatever what else we can think of. We hope this will inspire you to share and chat more with your dad, be it your biological father, grandfather, stepfather, like a father, or any other variation. I am your co-host, Aisha DeBerry, and I am here with my fabulous dad, Roy DeBerry. Here, 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 Aisha coming from Oxford, Mississippi. We're snowed in today. Uh, it's about uh, 18 degrees at the moment. We've had about four inches of snow. Uh, as you know, I have to go to Chicago in, in about two weeks, so I think this is my preparation for Chicago before I go to <laughs> Chicago. But anyway, it's a great, it's a great uh, uh, opportunity for us to get back together. It's been a little while. It has. Uh, we normally don't wait this long, but you know, you've been busy with your stuff. Uh, there in Atlanta, and I've been doing some things here in Mississippi. So, whatever the case may be, we're back together on MLK Day. That's uh, right. Which is a great day, uh, honoring a great man, a great American, uh, and a great world figure, really. So, again, it's a pleasure to be here, and my best to the folk there in Atlanta, Georgia, as well. Yes. So let's get started. Like Dad said, it has been a long time, and it has been completely my fault because Dad has been on it. You know, Bertine, if you tend to tune in or hear this, you know, dad is on it when it comes to not only our book that we produced. And if you all did not know, we actually do have a book that stems from our podcast. So I'll definitely men mention that a little bit later, but you can go to the website and check that out. But it is MLK Day. So we landed at the right spot, dad, even though it took forever. Like, no, we are at the right that. spot. And you're right <laughs> about the book, because last Thursday, uh, when John was in town, you know, John Lyons from Chicago, and I had an opportunity to go by the community uh, group meeting. We didn't get a chance to really uh, sell the book, but we are going to have an event coming up in about a month or so in February. And some of these community people do want to get a copy of our book, the first book, uh, Voices from the Mississippi Hill Country, which is about mm -hmm. the Benton County Civil Rights Movement, right? But yeah. they also want to get a copy of the album, which we published in 2023, I guess, or late 2022, about excerpts from this dialogue that, that you came up with the idea back mm -hmm. in 2020 when you uh, uh, agreed to give your kidney uh, mm -hmm. to my nephew Jabba's, which was life-saving. And uh, almost, what, three years out now, four years yeah. out, mm -hmm. uh, we are still um, celebrating that piece. So, yeah just a great opportunity to be back together to reflect on things that we usually reflect on which is all over the place yeah dad has it been almost four years that we've done this or three years well you started it right after the kidney so we're in 24 now and mm -hmm. you gave the kidney in 2020 in so it's coming up on four years wow you all we've been almost doing this podcast for four years dad that's an accomplishment we need to give ourselves a pat on the back <laughs> yeah, indeed. Give indeed. ourselves a round of applause. Uh, Give us a round of applause in the chat if you're on Facebook Live, y'all. We've been doing this for four years, almost. It'll be four years. Yeah, I mean, almost four years. March. And let's say your idea, and I just followed up on it because I thought it was a very good idea. Uh, yeah. You know, you always said there's an opportunity for dad, daughter to dialogue, an opportunity for me to talk about things that you say I don't talk about. Right. 
And so we still had to talk about stuff. It's been yeah. four years, y'all. We'll get yeah. to the personal stuff yeah. later. But you set this up in a way that you could get probably more out of me than you would otherwise. But again, <laughs> right. again thank you for doing it though, because I think it's been fun. It's been fun because as you know, our good friend Polly and others always ask me, when is the next podcast cast coming? You know, you all have yeah. been a while. And I said, it's Isha's fault. No, I said, no, it's all <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is my fault. If anybody knows me, knows I double book. So you already know that I have way too many things going on. But one thing rings true, that has been consistent with making sure that we stay true to this podcast, which was my original idea. Because for those who are just joining or don't know anything about us, because that would be exciting if you all have not been following us and now do, I did donate a kidney to my cousin in 2020. And after that podcast, I'm sorry, after that surgery, I was down for a long moment, of course, like all of us, because then, you know, the pandemic happened. And I thought, wow, I really haven't had an opportunity to ask dad just questions about his life, talk more about some of the things that are going on in the world. Even though we do that a lot, I still wanted to capture not only those moments, but some other things that I had never gotten a chance to ask before. And so that's how it started on Zoom, how we are today. And I even see people in the chat like Tiffany, who's been a long-term follower. Thank you, Tiffany, Hello, for Tiffany. watching. Um, and always interjecting, you know, and putting uh, comments in the chat. But yeah, we are here almost four years later. I can't believe it. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier is this is not something we just started with the podcast. No, I mean, ever no. since you've been in the world and you could argue with me and I could argue with you, we've been having these discussions around the dinner table, uh, yeah. in the car, on trips. So yeah. uh, uh, that's that's the case. You know, John Lyons from Chicago, who has two daughters, was in town and he was very complimentary. He said, you know, I really want to model uh, after you. I mean, it was an honor. He's about your age, maybe a few, a year or so older and uh, has two daughters. And I was really mm -hmm. pleased when he said that because he's been noticing me for more than 25 years now. And I yes. didn't know that he was, had been watching our relationship. And uh, he, he says, you know, I really modeled after my, uh, how I did with my daughters based on what I saw you and I used to do. So it's always a good thing to hear. Yeah. Well, just know that, you know, it's not as, as people know, dad and I have this relationship, but dad has really been um, a lot to a lot of people. So, you know, I have my cousin on here or cousins giving shouts out to you saying how much they love you. So dad has been, you know, a father to others, uncles, of course, to many, um, mentors to so many. And so, you know, I love the fact that I get to share dad with so many of you all. Thank you. Thank you. Because it's, it's an honor. It really is an honor as well as an opportunity. So I don't take it lightly. Yeah. Yeah. That's all y'all going to get. Okay, dad. All right. So going back, to, <laughs> going back to the topic, do know again that we do record this. So of course, if you're listening to this later, we are recording it on Martin Luther King Jr.'s official holiday weekend, if you will, on his day. Um, and acknowledging who he is, you know, and Tiffany, as I mentioned before, is, is an avid um, follower of us, but she put something on her Instagram that I just thought was so amazing and that she's going to be teaching her kids is about humanizing Martin Luther King. And so, you know, I know some of Martin Luther King just because I studied him, of course, in school. And I was fortunate enough to study him in, in complexity, if you will, being in Jackson, Mississippi. But of course, I think dad had a closer relationship 
or I should say a closer, was closer in proximity to his mm -hmm. age, if you will, to know a little bit more about him. And so what I'm saying here is, is Tiffany really brought up this wonderful point about, you know, we always see images of him like marching in a stern face or a sad face or a serious face, but there were so many other faces of him by way of so many other facets of him. So tell us that some of the things that you know about him um, that <laughs> well, we may not you, know. Yeah, we're not quite the same age. He's 95 today. Uh, <laughs> and, and he lives. And he lives. <laughs> I'm a few years from 95, but... but <laughs> <laughs> but we are <laughs> we are of different generation. Uh, you know, we but talk, he's still closer to yeah, he's closer you. To, he's closer to me than he is to you. I agree with you on that one. Uh, but but it's true. I never got a chance to actually see him up front. Uh, as as you know, we have had podcasts that talked about my involvement as a young uh, volunteer working with SNCC, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi during the, you know mm -hmm. during the sixties. And King, you know, was there with with uh, all kinds of uh, events that was taking place in places like Canton, Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, and certainly the Mississippi Delta. So right. while I did not get a chance to see him close, I was within proximity to 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 uh, to make a uh, long story short. Uh, but I will say this: you are absolutely right. Tiffany is absolutely right that people tend to take people who are human beings. Uh, flesh and blood, just mm -hmm. like we are, and make them into saints. And uh, King was not a saint, uh, never said he was a saint, uh, didn't want to be a saint. And after he died, then people, you know, put the sainthood on him. Uh, yeah. King was, uh, if you recall, very bright, very precocious, your church there at Ebenezer Baptist Church in, in Atlanta, Georgia. A father had been a, a minister there, oh, uh, Dr. King, father. Our mother played the piano there, and I thought, if I if I recall correctly, King's grandfather may have been a, a minister. I can't remember, but mm -hmm. certainly that ministry ran in that family. Um, King was very precocious as a as a young person. He went to Morehouse, I think, when he was around fifteen or so. Was not a great student at Morehouse. Uh, his mother played piano and probably had wanted him and his brother, and maybe a sister, to engage in music, and many of them probably did. I don't think King was that apt to do that. Uh, but music was still close. I mean, he, when he got to Mohouse, you know, he engaged with the uh, with the group there at Mohouse, the Glee Club and other musical groups. I went from there to Crozier, you know, uh, seminary, got his uh, theology degree, and yeah. it became much more serious when he, as he was getting older. Because you think about it, at 15, you're pretty young. Right, right. Yeah. And so therefore, you know, not the serious person that he became later. And then he went to Boston University, obviously got very serious where he pursued his, you know, doctorate in theology and where he met, you know, his his love. Uh, and one of the things, you know, you and I was joking earlier when we talked about Dr. King as a young person, you know, he was a ladies' man. He was a good looking guy. You know, Listen, I said, don't say that on a podcast, you yeah, all. Know that a, I said that ahead of time. You know, he was a good looking man, <laughs> a young preacher, very smart. You know, middle class guy there in Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, he goes off to New York and goes off to... Uh, to Boston, I'm sure there were a lot of ladies looking at him, uh, <laughs> as well as I think he pursued Coretta though, uh, because yeah. Coretta was was in her own right uh, renowned. Had got a, a scholarship, came out of Alabama, ended up in uh, Boston University at the conservatory there, right down the street from where you went to school mm -hmm. at Northeastern. Mm -hmm. 
And right. from there, you know, the rest is history. Uh, I would mention to you earlier that uh, they have a a uh, statue of the two of them, mm -hmm. uh, which I've not seen yet, uh, in the Boston Common. And right. the next time I go back to Boston, or the next time you back to Boston, please uh, check, check that out in the Boston Common. I understand it's supposed to be really a terrific uh, symbol of what she stood for, but also what he stood for. So yeah, mm -hmm. King did all these things, Nobel Prize, PhD, uh, a, a marvelous speaker. Uh, we have the day named after him. Uh, and we also shout out to see one and all those people that made this this day possible. But he's also a human. Right. Uh, uh, one of the things that we talked about on previous podcasts was King was a great mobilizer, right. great speaker. He right. was not necessarily on the ground type person. Uh, that was mostly people from the uh, younger generation, like from SNCC and from others who uh, wanted to uh, be considered a little bit more militant. You know, King was an establishment person and King did not want to really take on the movement. If you recall, when uh, our, our friend and, and, and person, uh, Parks, who, who decided to, you know, not get, give up a seat mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. spearheaded that Montgomery bus uh, uh, boycott, as well as other people there locally in Montgomery, were all about a movement. Right. But they and, and when King came, King was a reluctant leader. He was had to be conjoled. He had to be asked to do this. He wasn't planning to do this, so he was yeah. thrust into. And that's true of so many great leaders. Oftentimes, they are not planning to be this. Uh, they have the ability. They have the uh, talents. But sometimes people have to push them a little bit. And I think he had to be pushed into this. And once yeah. he was pushed into that, then. He, he 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 embraced it, yeah. And from yeah. there, we know uh, of the great speeches, of the great all, all organizational ability, the mobilization ability. Uh, but it was a collective effort. That's yeah. another thing too about movements: women, men, whole bunch of folk made that movement possible. Not just yeah. one man. Yeah, uh, and I King agree. Probably the first to tell you that he was one of many that, given the opportunity, he maximized that opportunity, and and. And do it fear like so many people did to do what he did. Yeah, I 100% agree. I wonder I wonder who was one of the first people to push him to do that. Because that I keep forgetting that part of the story about him being pushed into it and not wanting to do it. So I wonder what made him number one decide. And I wonder who initially pushed him. That would be a good question. I don't, I don't, that would be a good research uh, topic. There have been people that uh, have done great work on King. So maybe they have got that in the footnote somewhere. But clearly he had been, uh, it should have been a minister there at his father's church because his father was still minister. He ended up in Alabama, right? Right. Uh, pastoring a church there. And that's where that movement was. That's where that local, local movement was. But who was the person or the person that actually said, uh, we would like you to be the spokesperson for this movement? I, I don't have that information. I don't know. If somebody out there knows that, please share it with us. Yes, please do. If you can. I know there's some comments um, on Facebook that's just talking about how distinguished Coretta Scott King was shout out to my friend Robert from actually who I met at ITC in seminary speaking of seminary in Atlanta so yeah. um so definitely if there's anyone in the chat or you all listening to us later please email us and let us know that story because I just wonder who pushed him um to do that and it makes me think of so many people now that should be pushed to do things and they're just deciding not to do it and if you're feeling that way or if you're a person that's listening now go ahead and take the leap maybe this is your sign 
And sometimes the movements look for you rather than you look for the movement. Uh, but the question is, do you have the courage and the fortitude and the commitment to step up to do it? Some people yeah. do it, some people don't. Um, yeah. We've always had that question, which I don't have an answer to, is why is it that some people say that the circumstances there, the opportunity is there, I'm going to step out on faith or whatever and do it. And other folk, for whatever reason, say, I don't have the courage to do it. I'm afraid to do it. I don't want to do it. Uh, it's always that dividing line. And I don't know what, what the answer is. Yeah, well, Dad, I'm gonna go off script because just so okay. you all know, sometimes we plan a script that we want to talk about in a podcast, but this is the thing. So I want to ask you, Dad, you know, when you decided, you and your group of friends, you know where I'm going with this, when you were at Brandeis deciding to take over Ford Hall, what Ford Hall, what made you say, okay, I'm going to do this and be honest with us because I think what needs to happen is the young folks and not even the young folks, myself and those that are older need to understand what that process looks like. It's not easy and it's not simple and it's not a social media moment. Of course, social media wasn't then done there then, but what made you decide? Cause you're talking about King mobilizing, but not really wanting to do it, but kind of went into it being pushed and did a great job. But what made you do it? But tell people that don't know what you did first. And then why you decided to take it on? Well, she's talking about an event that took place at Brandeis in 1969, which was Fort Hall, which was a takeover at the campus, right? But before that, uh, as as we know, as you know, there was a context. Uh, I came to Brandeis initially uh, in 1965, you know, summer program. And mm -hmm. after that, I attended prep school in Boston for one year at Commonwealth, you know, Commonwealth School, which is a school founded by Charles Merrill, right? Charles mm -hmm. Merrill had some Mississippi connection. I think his father, I found out later from him or from Amy, his daughter, that uh, that the, the father had, his father, which was her great-grandfather, had um, had some Mississippi connection, may have even been born in Mississippi. Started, you know, Merrill Lynch, the, the big investment firm, uh, and then had gone off to service, came back and started the uh, Commonwealth School in, in 1958. And he had it as a as a mission statement that uh, Commonwealth would always be a diverse school, and that at least not a quota, but a a, a large percentage of uh, significant percentage of the students that would be students from the urban area of of, of Roxbury or, or or in Boston or Dorchester in, in Boston, and these would be folk of little means, so to speak, because mm -hmm, Commonwealth mm -hmm. was pretty expensive. So he provided, you know, made sure that there was scholarship available for them. But to make a long story short, so after that, I ended up back at Brandeis. But prior to coming to Brandeis, I came right off the movement, right? I came out, I think the summer I went to Brandeis, I just got out of jail, you know, for picketing uh, in downtown Jackson, right? Mm -hmm. So spent two weeks or three weeks, I came remember now in jail. I left there and went to Boston that summer. So there was some movement background, mm -hmm. right? So we got there. One of the first thing we saw that was a significant, well, a small percentage of students that looked like you. And yeah. so we felt given Brandeis, you know, tradition, given its mission, uh, truth until it's in the most part about the issue of social justice, all of that. We felt even two years out from Fort Hall uh, or three years out from Fort Hall, there were things that we had to do to make the climate much more uh, welcome and, and embracing of of people that were different from a, from a different in terms of economics, different in terms of color and that sort of thing. And so there was a process, right? That involved right. a whole bunch of us. 
So by the time that Dr. King was assassinated in 1968, and the whole country exploded at that point, including universities, right? The mm -hmm. idea was to take that opportunity, like with George Floyd, the, here's a golden opportunity for us to move the envelope, right? Because everybody right. sort of, how can I say, the, the pump had been primed for change. And I mm -hmm. think we were just in the right place at the right time to say we need to make that happen. Now, my, like with any up institution, when you go up against uh, the status quo, there's going to be pushback. Right. And the pushback here, we want certain things. Uh, we found that the university is willing to give some things, but not things that we consider the most important thing, like a black studies department or hiring of black professors or bringing in more students of color, all that kind of stuff in 1968. Oh, sounded good in theory, but in mm -hmm. practice, it was not fair. Uh, so given the fact that I had had that background, other students there, both graduate students and, and undergraduate students were willing to engage in, in social change. I, I think the idea of Fort Hall was just the, how can I say, the tip of the iceberg. You know, what that mm -hmm. was not the intent, but that became an avenue mm -hmm. for to achieve a greater uh, uh, objective, which was to do the things that we eventually got short of a few a few things. But the majority of things that we wanted and the joy of the thing we demanded, we were able to achieve. And so the point I say all the time to young people, especially, you know that all the time, is that mm -hmm. don't take the status quo for granted. In other words, don't say, I can't do this or we can't do that. It's amazing collectively when you organize and mm -hmm. you focused what you can do collectively. And But your calls also have to be right because you right. also have to get allies. And there were black students, white students, Asian students, who supported us. So there was no way we could have achieved these things without the support, or as, as uh, Jesse Jackson would say, without the Rainbow Coalition. So we right. put together a coalition, but that was not the main goal, but we needed that to happen in order for us to achieve the main goal, which was to make life better, not only for Black students on that campus, but Asian students on that campus, Hispanic uh, kids on that campus, poor white students on that campus, and the Jewish students on that campus. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, dad kind of glossed over it and gave you the whole, you know, overtone. He's planning on writing a book, so he doesn't want to go into all the details. But long story short, as I like to say, is, you know, there are some things that were not reflective of what the mission was of Brandeis at the time. And so post King's assassination, they decided collectively, dad being the president of, I believe it was called the Black Student Union then, I'm not yeah, sure. That, that's correct. Um, <clears throat> collectively to take over what was Ford Hall, which I believe was a student center or the just kind of central place for students to gather. Is Am I correct on that? Well, actually, it was not the student center at that time. It was the it was communication center and okay. the computer center. So it was the, it was the, uh, <laughs> it was the heart of the campus, basically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they so, took over the heart of the campus where no one else could come in. So they, um, you know, and I, I know this is recorded, so I'll keep it very high level. You can read this book later. But basically they took over that hall and folks could not come in and out. And clearly that was not convenient for a lot of folks on the campus. And they did this for more than one or two days. I'm not sure how many days. Because see, that, this days. is why we're doing the podcast. Because yeah. that never tells me all the details. How many days? 11 days. 11 days. See, I'm talking about one or two. See what I'm saying? 11 days they took over that um, 
main heart of the campus and made a few, if not more than a few demands, if you will, that were for the betterment of uh, the campus and the students overall. But one of the things that I want to point out, and this is something that King was also about, was nonviolence. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we were able to maintain even though we didn't control what was going on, on the outside of the building, we did control what was going on, on the inside of that facility. And except for a few incidents where some renegade students went into a library and, 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 and threw some books off the shelves, which we didn't know about until later, we did not condone, not that we advocate, not that we support any action of that sort. We wanted to stay focused, we wanted to stay nonviolent. And as I said earlier, to Brandeis' credit, uh, although they, it, it, this change recently with involving some Palestinian demonstration on campus where Brandeis and the, and the, and the Waltham police did come to the campus for the first time back in 69, no police came to the campus. Now there were uh, uh, provocateurs on campus. We knew that. We knew there were FBI agents on the campus. We knew that. We knew there was an agent of the states on campus. We knew that. We knew there were agents among black folk in that group. We knew all of that. Because one of the things I learned in the civil rights movement by being around Stokely Carmichael, being around Bob Moses, uh, being around Ivanhoe Donaldson and these other uh, activists was that you always assume that you've been, uh, your phone has been tapped. You always assume that you're gonna be, um, uh, somebody that's gonna be working as agent for some, some other entity. You assume that, but, but that doesn't distract you because if you think your cause is right and, and you uh, people that you're working with think that cause is right, that's the, all the momentum you need to continue to do what you need to do because you think that justice and right is on your side. Well, I, you know, of course, I'm still proud of you. Of course, I think it was a couple of, not more than a couple of years ago. I tell you, COVID has us all um, messed up in terms of time, but um, over maybe five or six years, dad was recognized at Brandeis for the work that he had done uh, with that movement. And you can find his picture there if you so happen to go to Brandeis or have students or family or friends that attend Brandeis University there in Fort Hall. So I think that is uh, amazing. And I'm I'm grateful and thankful to have you as a dad to even share this story. And so I don't know if many of you all knew that story about dad, because again, he kind of flies under the radar and does this humble thing, but he was a renegade, okay? He was a rebel with the cause. So uh, I'm very proud of the impact that has been made because of that, not just you, but also mobilizing many others that have not been named in this podcast. So. That is so true because there is the, the unnamed people oftentimes are the ones that really make the other difference in the world. And That's right. The, uh, the unsung heroes. And we saw that in the movement, uh, whether it was a student movement or the civil rights movement or any kind of movement, you're always going to find people that's moving under the radar. Yes, perfect. Good. Well, I, you know, I think I went off script here, but dad really had his own MLK story now that I realize how far in age and proximity you all were. But uh, just so you all know, our followers are awesome. Robert, thank you for letting us know. He gave us a reference from the NAACP that Martin Luther King Jr.'s father is one of the, the folks that really pushed him to move forward in the movement based on that reference from the NAACP.org. Thank you for that information. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so we talked about MLK. I see some more family is all, also on the chat. So thank you for tuning in. And even if you can't stay here the whole time, thank you again for being here. And feel free to say hello or put a heart um, there so we know that you're you're around. So the wonderful thing, you, we talked about Fort Hall. We talked about um, 
really freedom of speech in a way at a college university. You know where I'm going with this. Many of mm -hmm. you all have heard about Dr. Gay, who was the first Black female president of Harvard University and had a very short tenure of six mm -hmm. months and had to, or decided not had to, made the decision to step down. I'm not sure if it was a had or not, but she made the decision to step down. And, you know, of course, when I found out the news, that was a sad day for me because I was so excited. I think dad and I talked about how excited we were to see that happening at Harvard, but here we are. So, you know, dad, feel free because dad is pretty much a historian and knows Harvard well. If you could just kind of give us a little bit of a backstory as to how, how that yeah. happened. Well, in terms of history, my own relationship with Harvard was, you know, I, John F. Kennedy School, I was there for a while, and that's at Harvard, uh, when when uh, I was at Jackson State. And then prior to that, as an undergraduate, before I went to Africa, you know, uh, we've talked about this on the podcast, I spent a year in Nigeria at University of Ife, Ile Ife, and I had the, before I could actually go, I needed to complete my, uh, some courses for that year, other than the year after Fort Hall, so I ended up going to Harvard. Uh, that summer to to get that those courses. That was my only being on the campus and working with Harvard. Uh, but one of the things you and I have talked about is just how wealthy mm, that university was, is mm -hmm, uh, now. Mm -hmm. I think about $50 billion in endowment. And one of the things that struck me about this episode with Gay, and even though you and I both talked about how proud we were when she was selected as a as a first, uh, not the first female president, but the first black female president. Yes. Harvard, right. And then when this situation came up with Israel, uh, uh, and then when they went down to Washington uh, and got caught in what I call a trap, you know, basically uh, professors and university people are not really adept at dealing with these politicians. You know, I'm, right. I'm gonna just be general here. Uh, so clearly they were not prepared, whether it was Harvard president or the woman from Pennsylvania or the, the woman from MIT. What mm -hmm. I was proud of, though, and I said this to Bob Johnson or someone who was a colleague of mine when I was at Brandeis, he was at up at uh, Bowdoin College in Maine, was that this was the first time I've seen, Brown has had a Black president before, a female, mm -hmm. uh, but this is the first time I've seen three female presidents at the same time mm. over Ivy League schools. I hadn't seen that before. Yeah. And somebody correct me historically, if they can document where that's been the case at the Ivy League schools, um, I will feel corrected. So that was a plus. And then once she came down and was not, had not been prepped or had been prepped too much and sort of lowly language about context, cause the word that got her in trouble was context, mm -hmm. right? the word, and then later on the plagiarism thing is with me a footnote, right? Because right? a whole bunch of so-called scholars do it, right? Yes. We know that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Some get caught, some don't. Uh, our President Biden, you know, dropped yeah. out of the first one of his runs for president for doing that, and, and there's so many others. But the fact about it is when you use context and you just had a situation where, you know, at the time they said 1,500 people, and it turned out to be 1,200 plus people that had been slaughtered by Hamas and uh, in, in, in right across the border from Gaza, you have to condemn that. And you'll mm -hmm. condemn it all right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not a context issue. Now, once you condemn that, 
Then you can speak for the, you go into the history part, if you so desire. You can go into this issue with the war thing, which is another different issue. Or you can even go and criticize Netanyahu, as I have always done, do it today <laughs> and will in the future, right? Just as I criticize Trump, because I'm able to separate the people of Israel from Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. I'm able to separate the people of America from Trump or any other president, right? Mm -hmm. That, I think if you do that, then you're on a different uh, 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 stage. But when you see, it looks like you're unwilling to condemn an act like that, then uh, it's, it, it makes you untenable. Now, Harvard is, is an institution that's very wealthy and very old, right? So you would expect Harvard could take the political uh, heat. The one thing that bothered me about the whole episode, in addition to the fact that Gay, you know, was dismissed, she was dismissed uh, because of all the pressure that's coming from the alumni and all the pressure that was coming from people that donate a huge amount of money to Harvard. She was a, she was a goner at that point. Right. Was the fact that it did not protect, not so much gay, but protect its own image in terms of free speech. Right. Uh, right. Now they get into this thing about, well, uh, this stuff is, is uh, you've been a hypocrite because what you're saying is, uh, we're going to allow uh, the Palestinians to uh, have free speech, but we're not going to allow other folk to have free speech or vice versa. Right. You get caught there, right? So the issue is that if you if you go with free speech, then do free speech. Right, if, right. If, if, if there's stuff that's taking place on campus that's actionable, that's hurting students, that's hurting faculty, you take action against that. But you, you, don't, you don't fire somebody because they take make a statement about something. Uh, you can condemn, but then you have a right to free speech. So I don't think it came down to free speech. I think it came down to the fact that she used the term context as if to say, uh, you need some water, this is justified. And I don't think, I think she's a decent woman. I think she's uh, pro-humanity, which means that she only does not support the Israeli people, but she also supports the Palestinian people. Because one of the things that we know, and I know you didn't leave me here, but I went to Brandeis, right? And I sat on Brandeis board. And I right. had the same discussion with some of my Brandeis colleagues. This is absurdity, right? You have a situation with the right in Israel and you have a mosque. Mm -hmm. And both of those entities don't accept the existence of the other, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. these, these folk on the right, religious right in Israel, and many of them are part of that government, don't want to see the Palestinian people exist or have a state. They have Hamas on the other side that don't want to see the people of Israel, i.e. the Israelis exist. What we have to have is, is a universal stateswoman and statesman who can say these clowns, I'm sorry, these jokers cannot solve the problem. Right. We're going to have to have right. another generation of people in Israel, in Palestine, that say, look, this is a small part of land here. We got to live here. We have gotten along historically before because it's not a religious issue. Religion right. of Christians and Jews and Muslims have gotten along for generations. So don't, I don't buy that. Yeah. What I do buy is a person like uh, Netanyahu, who is very ambitious, who probably want to stay out of jail, probably not going to get elected. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying, I'm not always for to say he was so uh, so demented that he would uh, wage this war to keep himself in power. But certainly this war has helped him sustain 
a little time where he stay in power. But at the end of the day, he has done Israel no good. Uh, and the, the right way in Israel is doing Israel no good. And Hamas is doing the Palestinians no good. So we have to find a way for the Palestinian people and Israeli folk to say, we are got we got to find a way to live together because the only alternatives, what I've mentioned before, with Camus is it's absurdity. Yeah. It's like we just gonna kill each other till neither one exists. Yeah. Because if I don't accept your humanity and you don't accept my humanity, how can we negotiate? Yeah. You yeah. I have to accept the fact that you are human. And you have to accept the fact that being him, we can disagree about mm -hmm. philosophy, we can disagree about uh, religion, we can disagree about a lot of things, but we have to at least agree on one core thing, that we're both human. Mm -hmm. And right now we got these folks who don't even accept that as a basic principle, and that is a key problem. I'm yeah. sorry I went on for a while, but it's no. a very complicated area, and I get very emotional about it because I just, it bothers me that, you know, 1,200 people were slaughtered, but it also bothers me that 20-some thousand plus people have been slaughtered in this massive bombing uh, that's taking place that we as a country, United States of America, support. When you drop a 2,000-pound bomb, by the way, I've been to Gaza, mm -hmm. so it's not, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about areas I have not seen. I've yeah. been to Israel. I've been to Egypt. I've been to the West Bank. And so I saw things, of, I saw occupation, right? And there was 2000, this is not a long time ago that I was there. You only talking about four or five years ago, a few right. years before the pandemic, right? And you right. can see it boiling there, unemployment, uh, people having to depend on another country for their, for their food, for their water, for everything. And that's why it was so easy when, when, when the war started for Israel, just cut everything off mm -hmm. as they did. Mm -hmm. And all these people have suffered because of that, particularly the children. Yes. And the kind of trauma, not just among the, the, the trauma that's going to take place among Israelis, but the massive trauma that's going to take place among these Palestinian kids for generations to come. Yes. And I, I mean, I don't think you should apologize for being emotional about it, Dad. I mean, I think what's important, your passion is showing how important this issue is because this issue, even though it's not happening to us physically here in the United States, we are still our brothers and our sisters keeper. And we should be able to empathize, especially those who are folks of color or women or children to, to be able to know what it feels like to be um, the other and to be cut off or mistreated to the point of death, to the point of death. So I, you know, I have many brothers and sisters that are here in the United States that are fighting very hard on the issue. I have many that are over on the other side fighting on the issue. So if nothing else, please educate yourself on what's going on um, as a baseline, just as a starting point, because to ignore and be silent is really going against all of the principle that MLK even talked about. As Absolutely. And that's the humanity part. Of course, you know, you're right. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. And, and one of the things, you know, to your point about the fact that it's 7,000 miles away or 5,000 miles away, that's, that's material, whether it's in Sudan or whether it's in Chad or whether it's in Ethiopia or whether anywhere in Ukraine. Anytime another human being is dies or suffers, uh, we all suffer a bit. And you cannot, it's almost like when uh, the Holocaust was taking place in Germany and there were people in America that said, we will not get involved. That doesn't right. concern us. No, you can't do that. You have to get involved. That doesn't always mean war, right. but you have to get involved. You have to speak out. 
Silas King talked about that, even though mm -hmm. in the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. how good people, when you remain silent, mm -hmm. that can be very bad. That can be very destructive. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of people condemning South Africa, but South Africa is right to step up mm -hmm. and make a statement and let the court decide on whether or not uh, a war crime has been committed or genocide has been committed. I do know this though, mm -hmm. when you're in a small place like the, the, the Gaza and you got these uh, cities in the North and the cities in the middle, and I've been to all of them and the cities in the South. And you talk about this urban area with all these people and the borders are closed all around. And you tell people to move to an area. There's nowhere for them to go. Yeah. You, if, if you say move to an area, where do you go? You get bombed. And if you go there, you don't have any facilities. You don't have a cooking facility. You don't have sanitation facilities. You don't have water, right? And then, so all of that. Now, I know the argument about, you know, Hamas got these tongues on the ground, all that. I understand that. Hamas is not uh, Israel's friend, nor is his Palestinian friend. But the point is, are you going to violate international law? Are you going to engage in these kind of inhumane acts because right. you're going to go after, quote, unquote, the terrorists, Right. So right. that, that's that's an issue. So this issue of 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 whether you are committing genocide or whether you're committing war crime becomes irrelevant because at the end of the day, uh, if you, you don't have a right to violate international law, you don't have a right to commit crimes against humanity because you're going after somebody who's committed crime against humanity. Right. That's right. That's a zero sum game. I tell you, I wish that we could solve this. It just seems so heavy to solve. But to your point, until we get to the baseline of seeing each other as human, I just, you know, I, I, I'm painfully, you know, watching. And I, I don't even know what to say. As you can see, I'm kind of lost for words because yeah. it just we feels at times quite hopeless. But I do know that if we don't continue to push forward, I'm sure there are many times during the civil rights movement where things felt mm -hmm. hopeless. And so um, all you can do is just keep going forward. I agree. That's right. We can't solve them all, but we can always speak out. That's right. And, and we, we can up. try to educate ourselves as much as possible. And I, you know, I got a pretty good knowledge of this area because I've studied it for a long time, but it would take long for people to just go and try to check on, you know, the, this history, how it was established and what happened prior to, you know, starting in the uh, early 20s, right through World War II, right through the United Nations, right up into where we are. Uh, and so, you know, we are manifesting. And then one last thing I'll leave, we'll, I'll leave this point is this notion that the victim cannot become the victimizer is not true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard people say, well, this happened to me, therefore I can't do it to somebody else. Not true. You can be a victim and turn around uh, years later, uh, generations later, and then start to commit the same acts that Absolutely. people have committed against you. And that's Absolutely. what you have to be careful about and not get into this high polluting self-righteous position uh, that you can't do these things. Yes, you can. If you're not well, vigilant. Well, you know, Dad, people in the chat say they appreciate what you've shared. And I'm sure those that will listen to this later will do the same. So never apologize for being passionate about this because it is complex. There's a reason why you're passionate about it. And so we too need to get passionate about it. However, we get passionate about it instead of remaining silent. 
Thank you. Um, you know, speaking of this and and watching this and and you know, you were talking about just kind of what we're going to see later on, even from those who are Israelis and Palestinians. Um, is around mental health. And we've talked about this before. We know that May mm -hmm. is Mental Health Awareness Month. And so we've talked about it in the podcast before. I do want to pay my respects and a thought of silence. And hopefully you all that are listening will take a moment of silence for um, the Vice President of Student Affairs of Lincoln University in Missouri, Dr. Candia Bailey, who uh, passed away this past week uh, because she was dealing with things around depression and don't quote me because I don't specifically know, but some mental health uh, issues such as depression, possibly some anxiety. And she had gone forward to her supervisor, who is the president of Lincoln University overall, to express those concerns around FMLA and leave and things of that nature. And that was not granted for her. And so she unfortunately took her own life. And um honestly, to be quite honest with you all, this one really hit me in particular because, you know, you all, I have talked about having anxiety and dad has sat on board for the mental um, health uh, board of, uh, what is it called? Dad? I don't want to misquote it. I'm sorry. Commission on, on, on mental health. <clears throat> the commission on mental health, excuse me. And so we both are very passionate about it, but um, it just struck me to my heart because it makes me think about so many workplace bullies that are in in all spaces, corporations, nonprofits, education. And in particular, it struck me as a Black woman that was fairly close in age uh, to Dr. Candia Bailey. And um, it just made me realize that there are many times that we are not heard and listened to. And I, while I am sad to see Dr. Gay step down, where I'm going with this connection is, in a way, I'm kind of glad that she made the step, even though she was forced, instead of continuing to try to push forward, I believe she came to a, a center place of, it's probably best that I step down. Now, maybe she was forced completely. I don't fully believe that because I think she could have st still fought if she wanted to, but I did appreciate as well, even though it was very unfortunate that she also chose herself and decided to step down because it makes me think about... Um, our sister from Lincoln, who did not make that choice. Well, thank you for sharing that. You're right, the mental health thing is just so key. And sometimes when we get in these positions of authority and power, um, of course, you know, costs are associated with that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you're right, that you have to decide on whether or not the monetary value, uh, fame, whatever may be the case, are more important than your own mental health. Right. And like you right. said, we will, we will never know unless she writes about it, talks about it. This, the key reason why this lady that she referred to, Ms. Bay, Dr. Bailey, uh, committed suicide, or we don't know fully why, uh, although we think we know why Dr. Gay finally stepped down. Uh, we do know that as a human being, we are capable of taking so much. Yeah. And once <laughs> those forces come at you, uh, particularly when they start to question your own humanity. For mm -hmm. an example, like the, the right wing, the same uh, group of clowns that, you know, work to uh, to get rid of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. That same group is at work out there to now destroy uh, diversity, inclusion, and what's the word? Equity. Uh, equity. So keep in mind that a lot of this stuff is not by accident. 
Mm-hmm. Just like mm-hmm. we talked about the civil rights movement, organizational movement, these counter movements are also very organized and have been organizing for a long time. Like the people that fight to give women right to choose, that that thing has been going on for fifty years, right? So you right. got these people right. organizing and mobilizing. So the same people that's now against DEI and that's against, say, gay and what she represents, uh, they out there fighting against you. Now the question is whether or not gay would have. Uh, I, I will say this about the Harvard faculty, though. They stepped up yeah. in a big way. Mm-hmm. Not only just the faculty of color, but yeah. faculty across the board, because I think they recognized what was happening here when they allowed politicians and outside forces to determine how a university should conduct itself. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things universities like to say, we're independent of this politics. Right. Everything we do is based on you know merit, uh, quote unquote, we know that's not always true, but that's right. what they say. And at least be consistent with that. So to your point, yeah, this mental health thing is is important. And uh, I respect her decision, even though I was really elated when she got elected. I was also not pleased at all that somebody that's only served six months, the yeah. shortest tenure, uh, has to leave. And then on some bogus thing, like you uh, did not quote somebody in a uh, attribution, uh, when I know for a fact that we published a number of books, uh, how unless you double and triple check these stuff, right? how that stuff can easily be uh, put in a document or not put in a document by an honest error. I'm not saying that it was honest or because I don't know. I yeah. just know that and I'm not justifying it as being right. Because mm-hmm. if you punish students for that, then faculty and, and, and administrators should be held to the same standard. And you should not make any exception. But I know for a fact exceptions are made all the time, particularly for white males yeah. uh, throughout the society and have always made those exceptions and and no big deal about it. Yeah, yeah. My well, I know, you know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, when we talk about, you know, just going back to the mental health is that we, you know, take time for yourself. Uh, ask yourself if you're willing. And it's not to say that you shouldn't take positions or or, or, um, opportunities that will allow you to have uh, power and influence, but just make sure that you are balanced and do not take on the weight of the world. I I don't know who I'm speaking to when I say this, but I just seen kind of this sweep of, in particular, because of my lens, um, Black women move into these positions powerfully and crumble not crumble because of their own merit, not crumble because they are not qualified, not crumble because they're not supposed to be there, but crumble because the forces, the forces that be um, have allowed that to happen. So just want to make sure that those that are listening, that you continue to balance yourself and ask yourself, is it worth it? And if it's worth it to continue to have support systems in place to, you know, to help you move forward. Those support systems are so important and we need them all the time. You have to have support systems. You have to have people that are friends and associates, which won't tell you the truth, but also support you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that mental health thing is just so on. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought it up by Dr. Barry. And also I'm glad you brought up the uh, thing with, uh, with President Gay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, these women both did wonderful things. Rest in peace again. 
Dr. Candia Bailey, and we send love to you, Dr. Gay. We send love to all the people that are doing wonderful things around service. You know, I went to Ebenezer, as dad mentioned, I attend Ebenezer Baptist Church, Freedom's Church here in Atlanta. And the conversation was about continuing to do the service work, which means being closer in proximity to those who do not look like you, who do not have your same story, because the closer in proximity you are to those, the more you are able to do the humanity work that we all should be doing. So I would love to hear, you know, in the chat or sending us an email of something that you decided to do today on MLK or something that you're deciding to move forward with. But I do want to ask that, you know, what is one, one of the MLK service projects that you're working on? I think it may have to do with Ashland. It does have to do with Ashland. Matter of fact, I was on the phone today uh, with the, one of the professors at Brandeis, my, my uh, institution, and we've been working for the last four or five years on this project. It's, it's a remote project that started really during, the, during COVID, where we're trying to, and Ashland, I'll give you a little bit of a context. It's a small rural school in Ashland, Mississippi, uh, predominantly black, but in a county that's predominantly poor white, right? And there are two uh, schools, one predominantly white, one predominantly black. The public white school is not great, but it's doing a little bit better than a predominantly black school. Uh, primarily because access to internet and a whole bunch of other things. And one of the things that I said to the principal and the superintendent some time ago is that we think we can close this gap. Uh, we know that the facility is not up to par. We know that some of the resources are not up to par. But if we can link up, say, the math department or the science department at Brandeis and some of the uh, students there who would like to give community service or whatever, we have worked out a thing where they're actually going to get a little stipend to, to mentor Good. and mentor, uh, we'll start with the eighth and ninth graders, but we also can move and deal with the, you know, the sophomores, juniors and seniors later, because we want this program after the after the pilot, right? We, mm -hmm. we want to see how that goes and then we'll uh, see what we can expand it. So the idea is uh, to get that going. So I was on the phone today uh, with the, uh, uh, one, well not on the phone, did some internet work with one of the uh, math teachers who is going to have a meeting this coming Thursday. And I'm going to tune in, go on Zoom, and get a chance to meet and talk with some of the mentors who are going to be working with the kids in Ashland. And then awesome. uh, I met with the principal last week, John and I did, and the principal is enthusiastic about getting this program going. And I'll get a chance to uh, meet with some of the kids that's been tutored at Ashland. And we also extended to him, we've been in our office, changing our office around, setting up the right kind of equipment. So if the kids in the evening uh, need some extra work and we find a person to come and be like a monitor, they can come to my office and use the computers to do whatever homework that they uh, need to get done, that they won't be able to get done at home because many of these kids in the rural area, believe it or not, in 2024, still don't have access to broadband. Right? That is amazing. Uh, I mean, the so fact that, yeah, that you're doing this. Yeah, so that's uh, that's to me uh, uh, something we did today in line with what Dr. King again says we ought to be about something that's making a difference in the lives of people. And in this case, we hope we're going to make the difference in the lives of, of young people in high school who need help in math, science, and, uh, and technology. That is amazing. Look at this baby boomer, y'all. Look at this baby boomer. Still, Still booming. Doing Still booming. Okay. No, that's, that's good. That is great. I mean, the fact of the matter that you've been able to bring 
folks from your alma mater to have the relationship with those in Ashland and the students in Ashland to have a relationship with those in Boston and at Brandeis. Again, bringing that proximity closer as Reverend Warnock talked about at Ebenezer on this past Sunday. So that's amazing. I know for me today, I went and supported one of the fabulous millennials here in Atlanta, Elena Reeves, who is running for Clayton County Commissioner District 1. Um, if you know anything about Clayton County, that's a little bit of Jonesboro, Morrow, may touch a little bit of Forest Park, I believe. And so she has planted herself down on the South Side, which a lot of folks don't even pay attention to here in Atlanta, but there are some bustling, wonderful things happening on the South Side and she is committed to doing the work. She has a lot of passionate energy. So if you happen to be in Clayton County and her district of District 1, consider voting for Atlanta Reeves. She is really hitting the, hitting the pavement. So we did a, um, a parade walk in for the MLK day, of course. And she was out there kissing babies, shaking hands, passing out water, passing out information. So it was a really good morning. And it relates to for protest to politics. So one of the things uh, while we protested in the 60s because people didn't have the right to vote and people that couldn't hold office, right? Now, uh, people now in a position where they are voting and they mm -hmm. are running for office. So they're in the political arena. So that's a plus. That's something that was one of the goals of the civil rights movement. And that was one that I think has been pretty much achieved. Yes. Yes. Well, we're going to close it out. I know we've almost come up to our hour. Thank you yeah. all so much for engaging with us in the chat. And hopefully when you all listen to this later on the podcast, you'll send us an email. But I just want to close out and say, for those that may not know or if this is your first time, dad is over in Oxford, Mississippi, and I am here in Atlanta. And just so you all know, Oxford, Mississippi, if you have not been before, has been rated one of the best small cities to visit, not just in the state of Mississippi, but also in the nation. And then where dad is from, Holly Springs, Mississippi, has been rated one of the top cities for the state of Mississippi. So if you've never been to Mississippi, you need to go. And then number two, if you go, you should stop by Oxford or Holly Springs. Thank you, Isha, for that plug. And as I say, when you, you sent me that link, I was uh, a little bit surprised, a little bit shocked that uh, my hometown got that rating for Mississippi. <laughs> Uh, and less surprised because I, you know, I think we shared the piece about Oxford, you know, some time ago. Ben, I call it the village. Uh, it is a very uh, uh, nice uh, little town. I mean, obviously it's a university town, but I think it got this offering not because it's just a university town. It got this offering because of the people. Um, speaking of of uh, MLK, uh, since we uh, last did a, uh, a podcast, because I can't stay out of politics, right? So, right. I did work with one of the supervisors here back in November. Uh, he was elected to uh, be supervisor for Lafayette County. That's the county where I, I live. And he's also asked me as of last week, I told him I need to think about it, uh, is whether or not I'd be willing to serve on some another board, right? I, as if mm -hmm. I don't have enough, enough board to serve on another board. I did tell him though this though, uh, if I did decide to serve, it would be probably two areas. One would be fiscal. And one would be uh, economic development or planning, because I want to get a sense of what's going on, because Oxford is growing. A lot of developers are coming here. A lot of people coming here. It's like a little bit of a, it's like a little bit, bitty, bitty Atlanta, right? So mm -hmm. everybody wants to come here. So one of the things I want to do is be in a position where I can find out about things and tell potential uh, young people of color, but maybe are not of color, of certain opportunities that would, would take place here if they decide to 
come to school here, if they decide to live here, if they decide to work here. And mm -hmm. uh, also be in a position to share with the supervisor certain things that he should be doing, could be doing uh, to move some of his less progressive colleagues uh, in a direction that we all need to go in. So yeah. that's a way to stay involved with the politics. Yes. Like I said, dad is a baby boom, but you can't tell. You cannot tell. So what and are also you doing? And I must tell you, 24, and I have to tell you this because I hadn't put this on you. I'm also going to get back into small farming, right? Yes. We've, we've talked about farming. And yes. so uh, I got an email back today from the, because I had gone to USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, which is historically discriminated against Black folk. Yes. I said, look, here's an opportunity for y'all to redeem yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a young, I'm an old <laughs> Uh, but I'm a new farmer because I'm going to get into some uh, some sheep farming and some goat farming. And I'm going to uh, redo a lake uh, where I can do some fishing. And for anybody that come to Oxford, they come to my old cabin that we <laughs> restored, you know, some years ago. And uh, I'm going to be a farmer and, and we'll grow some uh, we'll grow some fresh vegetables, not only for our family, but for other people that might want to get some fresh vegetables. There's a fresh vegetable market here, so I have a place to to uh, sell my products once, oh, once I grow them. So that's gonna be my goal for 24. You you often say that I have all these projects, so that's my new one. Yes, well, <laughs> if anyone knows me when they say I have too much going on, now you know where it comes from, okay? So anyone that has a problem with me having too many projects, blame my father, don't blame me. Many of you all that are listening know what I'm talking about. So yes, just so you all know, dad also has an off the grid, house that he was able to uh, buy the land from his great grandparents and it has now been redone it's all solar and now he's talking about a farm so listen we don't have enough time to talk about it we'll talk about the farm on the next <laughs> podcast for anyone who has interest talking about green living and off the grid farming which i think is really cool because i adopted that and had chickens in the backyard and here That's in the right. city of atlanta so that was interesting and we will continue with that but um um, many of you all, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for, again, engaging in the chat. Get to know a friend in the chat. Share information in the chat about what you did today on MLK Day, what organization you are a part of, what great work you're doing. Because I see a lot of y'all in the chat. I know for a fact for myself that you do great work. And I want to make sure to share that with dad as well. If you are tuning in later on the podcast, you can email us at daddaughterdialogues and tell us about what you did on MLK or, or tell us about the organization that you are a part of and maybe we will shout you out in the future. But otherwise, if you are just relaxing on today for your own mental health, that's service as well. That's resistance. Rest is resistance as well. Any last thoughts, Dad, before we close out? No, I'm going to go out and enjoy the snow. Mama, as you know, loves to feed the birds. So with all the snow on the ground here in Oxford, Mississippi today, so she wanted me to go outside and, and, and feed the birds. So I guess I'll do that in a few minutes. But again, it's always great to get back together and to dialogue and fellowship and chat as we, as we do. And so with that, again, I want to thank our audience for rejoining us after some months delay. Hopefully we'll get back more on tap in, in 24. <laughs> yes, we will get back 
on track. 2024 is the plan to get on track and have regular scheduled podcasts coming out. Do know that this podcast is available where every podcast is placed. That'd be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. You can find us there later if you don't want to come back and see the recording on Facebook Live. But for those on Facebook, love to see you here. We wish you well. We are going to close out for our wonderful listeners um, that will be listening a little bit later. So we're just going to do the closeout outro, but I just want to let you know have a great, great weekend. If you would like to contact us, please email us at deaddaughterdialogues at gmail.com and let us know how we are doing as well as what you would like to hear us discuss. We are also on Facebook like we were on today at Dad Daughter Dialogues and also on Instagram. So if you want to make a comment there too, please feel free and go ahead. If you go on Instagram on our Dad Daughter Dialogues page, you'll find that there's a link to our merchandise. We absolutely appreciate that. And also consider being a monthly subscriber. Your funds help us keep this podcast going. As always, we do have a book available, which you can find on AishaDeBerry.com and also on Amazon. Amazon. We appreciate you tuning in and ask that wherever you are to be and stay safe. One love, one love. Take care, everybody. Bye. This is the love that makes me strong. Yeah, this is the love.